Good morning. It's morning huddle time. Chad Prinky here, as always, along with my good friend, producer, co-host extraordinaire. How do you want us to install this uh, water heater? And my coworker's like, I don't know, ins install the water heater. Like, what, why are you even asking me? He's like, well, I don't know if you know, but did what you designed, it can't physically fit through the front door <laughs> of this building. My class is only 40 minutes. So we have to get this done in 40 right? minutes. You have to clean up in 40 minutes. And then it also, when you use the miter saw, a lot of kids are scared of the miter saw and you just see the difference in their confidence when they come in here compared to when they, when they leave, it, they're excited. Be announcing a new county that's gonna join us in Maryland. So we continue to spread it. And I'll say my peers across the country are starting to take this and adopt this at their local IEC chapters. Either um, AI assistant tools, you have AI master builder tools, and then you have um, kind of a bit of both that are one foot in BIM in current processes and one foot in AI. Said Brett, in life, opportunity meets you at your level of preparation. She said, here's the keys, go forth and do great things. Good morning. It is morning huddle time. Chad Prinky here alongside Stacy Holzinger. Uh, Stacy, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great this morning. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm, uh, you know, we, we have, um, uh, always the, like every Monday in, um, uh, every Monday that has, I'm sorry, every Monday that has like a holiday, uh, you know, so, uh, Martin Luther King day and president's day, my son mm -hmm. has had hockey tournaments, uh, mm -hmm. where if he makes the if it's all weekend long, if he makes the final, he play on Monday. And, um, I haven't made a final because I I've, I've had other responsibilities and other, and he keeps winning. <laughs> so it's like, it's awesome. He's winning hockey tournaments wow. and I'm like getting to see video of it afterwards and high five and all that stuff. But yeah, it's about like next year I'm taking off all the Mondays. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. It is. It's really cool. We're actually going to see the Harlem Globetrotters this weekend. So we're excited about that because I got my son into basketball. So I want him to. Have you seen them? When they do I, all the fancy tricks and when stuff. When you said that, I got all these really good, like old school, warm vibes. Uh, I, I saw the Globetrotters when I was just a little kid, maybe six or seven years old playing i guess the generals right the, the 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 team that they always play against and and kick their butt and it was uh it was awesome that sounds like a really nice time how your son's what five five yeah we're going to hershey we're, we're doing a lot of sporting events in hershey now like because the capitals it's just so much it's so stressful to get to the games and then they're going to be moving to alexandria so it's like we'll, we'll support the minor leagues now <laughs> I, I love going. I don't love. I, I agree. It's a way. It's a way less stressful drive to head north into the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, uh, type of thing. And parking is a piece of cake, and you know all that kind of stuff. But there is. Um, I mean, it, it's also just a haul. Though you're right on. You're you're kind of you have an angle to it, right? You're out on. Fre you're out in Frederick. Yeah, it's the same distance. Actually, we figured that out. So I'm like, this is just so much less stressful and. And the Hershey Bears are killing it. I mean, yeah, they, they are. They're an awesome hockey team. I, I, we got up for one game this year. Nice. 
Yeah. All right. Let's um let's bring on Naladri. So today's uh, guest is Naladri Sanagrahi. Naladri is the uh, a senior director at Liberty Mutual Surety, and and just a like surety. You know what? I'm not even going to do a 101 version. I'm going to do like a, a fifth grade version, and then Naladri can take it a step further. But when 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 you're thinking about where surety fits into the to the picture in the construction industry, these are the people who are, uh, you know, essentially guaranteeing the contractors who are building the project. So if a project requires a bond, a bond is essentially a, a, a protection for the owner or for the general contractor, depending on how that you know works out. But there, it's a protection to make sure that if they fail, that the money isn't wasted. So it's a, it's an insurance. And Naladri, he he's you know deeply involved in the whole process of making sure that these contractors are good risks for Liberty Mutual surety. Uh, Naladri, is that a, is that a fair description of it? And and what would you add to help our audience who may or may not understand, you know, bonding and surety? Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you, Chad. First and foremost, happy to be here. Stacey, thank you for the invitation as well. Um, great one-on-one, like you said, right? So when you think about bonds, it's really an assurance, a guarantee that when we take on when the public invests in a construction project, we as a surety company make sure that the project goes through. Through the bond, what we provide is not just a guarantee for the performance of the job, and that's the additional piece here. Chad, we also guarantee the payment. So through the Miller Act, way back, you know, going into the early 30s, 1935, when uh, we had the statute put in place, that was the protection that was guaranteed, that it's not just performance it's actually the payment too you know all the labor and the materials all the people who are investing in the project also uh, gets what's owed to them so overall we look at bonds as ensuring that public investment in our infrastructure is insured awesome and uh so Naladri and i got to know each other through a mutual connection at uh, marsh mclennan agency um uh, Emily Brennan and Josh Hauserman, awesome people uh, that uh, that I've been close with for years. And I got to know Naladri uh, through his very nerdy understanding and and interest in the uh, in the economy. He's like a total hobbyist economist and he's really really dialed in which i thought was awesome i'm like i'm talking to the laundry and i'm like taking notes i'm like wait a minute uh so the next thing we know we're we're you know doing a talk together uh, about a year and a half ago as we were you know, sh- you know sharing some ideas with the with the marsh mclennan agency uh client base in in a, a speaking engagement and um i thought it would be fantastic to have him join us on the morning huddle to talk about the state of our current economy and what we have to look forward to uh, in the year or two ahead. So, uh, Naladri, just out of maybe 30 second uh, primer, why did you get into uh, this focus on the economy and how does it, do you find that it actually helps you with your work? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And, and uh, something I just uh, took away, uh, Chad, hobbyist economies, I like that. Uh, generally, when I 
go on, you know, uh, talking to our clients and doing these presentations, uh, I always give the disclaimer that I am not an economist. I just love looking at what's happening around us in the economy, right? So um, in terms of background, so I was a civil engineer by trade. I worked in the public sector in India. I worked for the state of California here, uh, focusing on the transportation side. So um, I've always loved my attachment with the construction field. And then through my MBA at Duke and, you know, entering Liberty Mutual Insurance, um, in their corporate development program, I had an opportunity to kind of make my way into the surety space, which was purely a coincidence. I had no idea eight years ago when I joined surety what it was. I just mm -hmm. felt like it's a good line of work and uh, especially that alignment with construction. I, I thought it would be interesting, right? Then I joined this team and I look at all the stuff that we could do with data and analytics and creating insights and evaluator services for our clients. I'm like, that's amazing. And that's when I started getting into this field of, okay, we have a really solid way of understanding um, underwriting risk as far as surety bonds are considered internally using the financials that we get uh, for all our prospect accounts. But how about what's happening outside in the environment? That's kind of where it sort of triggered, you can say, in my mind. I was always interested, but this is where, you know, I made it real, so to speak. I brought in the different types of data that you can see and, and feel and sense in the external environment and then started to make it, to distill it, to make it clear, make it more palatable for our underwriters, for our leaders internally, and then also for our clients out there. That's where kind of the journey started. And yes, to your question, does it help in my job? It's part of my job, Chad. It's the it, thing yeah. that I love the most. It's not just, yeah, it's, I mean, you get to, you get to pursue this thing that you're super passionate about and use it for your job. So like, these are billable hours, man. These are, billable <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no. that's great. So, uh, I, I, I want to dive into some of the things that are, that have been on the minds of my clients of and almost channel those questions through to you. The uh, in, in 23, we obviously had a substantial increase in the baseline interest rate from the Fed, right? And that had reverberations across every lending market. Yep. And the the interest rate environment that was created, I found... Um, in in a lot of cases, undermined developer-driven construction. And uh, so I'm going to start with that question. What is What do you see coming for developer-driven construction in 24 and in 25? Yeah, yeah, great question, Chad. And I think even more importantly, a great starting question because you know when you think about developer-driven pipeline, you are thinking about both single family and multifamily, right? And not just talking about those apartment buildings that have been significantly impacted by these rising rates, but also the single family piece. And I'll explain why it is important for us to keep an eye on both. Um, so when you think about, you know, again, these two developer-led uh, structure types or project types, you are essentially looking at the residential sector, right? Um, the issue that we had early on, obviously, if you go back to the last financial crisis, it was essentially housing driven, right? Housing pretty much 
brought down the economy. Of course, there were underlying reasons behind it, but that's what happened. It was a housing-driven crisis. So when the pandemic hit us, we were all uh, worried again, like, oh my goodness, is it going to be a similar thing? Guess what happened? It was the exact opposite. Right. If you look at the trend in construction starts right after the pandemic, single family residential was the only shining spot. So yeah, it was on fire. Pulled out of a much worse outcome by single family. So that was amazing to, to see and you know experience as we came through the end of 2020, then 2021. Interest rates were still low. The feds were waiting. You know, they didn't want to take action. And, you know, if we can do something different, uh, you know, if, if we ever get an opportunity, I would say we should have started raising rates a little earlier so you could have yep. done it slowly, not as extremely, right? So I wanted to highlight that point because single family, when you look at the housing stars that indicate performance in the single family, that is a leading indicator for us. It basically leads a lot of other types of construction. When you have a developer, building a neighborhood, right? A subdivision of single family homes. It's not just the homes, right? You have all the essential utilities that come with it. You have the roads and the bridges. You have the underground water service type utilities. You have power. You have the schools, the hospitals, the banks, the offices, you name it, right? So it is really important for us to understand what's been happening there. And then, of course, you have the multifamily piece, right? So there was a slightly different story there. Um, immediately after the pandemic, multifamily went through a pretty steep decline because there was a lot of concern about the economy, right? People lost jobs and they had to move places. So it went through that abyss for a little bit, but then it came back up. Then came March of 2022. So I'm kind of painting yeah. a story here. That's when the Fed started raising rates. And as you know, there are 10 successive rate hike cycles. And, you know, we went up by what, 550 basis points, right? In a very, very short period of time. That was the issue. It's not that, you know, raising rates, getting off zero, it was in itself a bad thing because, you know, that zero rate, I mean, there is a sustainability for that. It cannot go on forever, but it happened very quickly, right? That was the big issue that we had. It hit us. Of course, single family was impacted right away and we needed it, right? So if I can, you know, like you did the surety 101, I would say if we can go back or get our audience back to Econ 101, it's always about supply and demand. What we are looking for is an equilibrium between supply and demand. That's the position which we can actually sustain in the long term. So on the single family side, yes, we had started seeing that. So demand cools down and supply ramps up. It's still pretty hard because we do not have enough supply of homes. So that's kind of the you know single family side where it is going um, in 2022, 2023. It of course you know went through a slowdown. Uh, 2024 we're actually starting to see that come back up. So on the single family side, it's cyclical, right? So we went through the slowdown. Now everybody's expecting the feds to do something with the rates. It's of course, it has been steady. Last three cycles, the feds didn't raise anything. The next stop is ultimately bringing it down. So we are all expecting that it is going to boost construction there. Multifamily, let me take a, a moment to explain sort of the difference you know, in the dynamics that happens there. So. On the multifamily side, there is a supply demand imbalance in a different way. So on the single family side, you had short supply of units in the market. Um, on the multifamily side, you actually have an abundance of supply. And the problem is they are happening in some of the most expensive metros, right. New York, Dallas, DC, Austin, Seattle, in all these places. So if you look at the numbers, you know, as of now, we have almost 
a million units under construction. That's historically high, highest in 50 years. So what do you do with all these units? Well, if it is a healthy market, then it is going to be absorbed. But our market in the last few years have not been extremely healthy, primarily because your multifamily units are going with offices, for example. When people are you know, heading back to their homes with the flexibility of working, they don't need these multifamily units anymore. So that's just kind of one reason, but that has been a sticking point for the multifamily development. In addition, you have that general worry about the economy that hasn't gone away. You know, consumers still feel pretty uneasy. We still are talking about a recession or a slowdown coming up, you know, this year, next year. We never know the timeline, but everybody has that concern. So when you put that all together, there is still an unease about building more multifamily units. So where are we today? Where are we going with that one? I think from the multifamily standpoint, it's still going to be pretty sluggish. It is not going to you know, ramp up right away. Uh, we are going to wait and see where things go. Rent growth, which is a key metric in the multifamily space, has been very, very low. It has been almost zero at the end of last year. And then vacancies has been rising. So I think the last number I saw, Q3 or Q4 of last year, was 6.6%. Was That's much higher than the long-term average. We want to bring it down to around that 5-ish percent. So the consensus that I see right now is on the multifamily side, vacancies are probably at their peak. So it should come down in order to make things you know, look a little bit more normal. Uh, we have to see, but I would say, you know, again, going back to developer pipeline, single family, multifamily, single family seems like it is going to, you know, come back up. And then multifamily will take a little bit longer uh, to get back to that uh, steady state um, equilibrium point. Yep. That makes some sense. I I think uh, one, one of the conversations I've had many times uh, with uh, our clients in this current climate has been that it's a very uneven market. I mean, and I don't, I don't know that it's ever, it's never even, right? It's there's always certain sectors that are hot, certain sectors that are sluggish. Yep. But the um, geographically, I'm seeing a very uneven market as well, where there yep. are these. Uh, secondary and and even tertiary kind of um, uh, markets. These historically, I would call them, you know, forgotten uh, yep. markets that have become perhaps in relation to the to the work from home trend, perhaps in yep. in overall response to the um, uh, you know, the, the, the size and I don't know the, the overall perception of desirability of large metros yep. has, has somewhat declined. And I'm seeing things like Richmond, Virginia on yep. fire, you yep. know, uh, Asheville, North Carolina on fire. You know, the, these are, and, and, you know, I could keep going with these, these little yep. sub markets all yep. over the country that are really experiencing a boom. And so it's, you know, I, I, I would counterbalance just in, in my mind, I know that you focus on things at a national level, so I don't, I, I won't press you into, you know, what do you think of Asheville? But, uh, but I will, <laughs> but, but I will say that I think there's a, a difference, um, yeah. in, in that multifamily outlook, depending on the markets that you're in pretty yes. substantially. And I think there, there, there is a, there's a lot to be said right now for, 
um, positioning yourself in those sub markets? It's a very good point, Chad. In fact, uh, funny enough, when I was looking at some of the trends at a regional level, so may not be at the level of a city necessarily, but definitely at the level of a state, um, Midwest, parts of Midwest, and then uh, in the mid-Atlantic. So where you are, Chad, right? Uh, they were some of the brightest spots. It's very true. And, you know, I was, I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised because as you said, right, I mean, typically we do see some sort of a bifurcation or divergence, uh, whether in terms of the different sectors within construction or in terms of geography. Also, if I can, you know, paint a quick picture as a follow-up there, in terms of the, you know, the distribution, so to speak, you know, uh, across the country, we definitely have seen a lot of strength uh, on the south side, the south southwest. I'm based in Plano, Texas, so I know you know this belt uh, has definitely been uh, one of the strongest spots, and it is related to migration. So yeah. think about the big metros, right? When you are talking about out migration, people have left, especially following the pandemic. California, so the west has California, and you know Washington State, they have both lost a significant part of their uh, you know premium population, so to speak, premium wage earners. And they have come to places like Frisco, Texas, the city that I live in. You know, it became a hot potato in the last few years. So, um, so that trend has definitely impacted where we are going to see, you know, a little bit more boost, so to speak, in terms of uh, the, the construction demand. So, yeah, it's where you see this is what one of the things that I, I wonder what your take is on this. This is my my if if if. I'm a I'm a total amateur economist. I'm a very amateur economist, but I you know I I spend a lot of time reading and and paying attention to the trends. And of one of the things that I look a lot at is where's the job growth happening, where's the population growth happening. Yep. And uh, th- that to me is like a bellwether when you're projected to have two hundred thousand jobs come to your state, sixty thousand yep. jobs coming to your metro area it's going to be really, really good for construction. That's yeah. going to be great for construction. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the JOLTS report, I don't know if you have seen it yet, Chad, but um, the job opening and labor turnover survey, oh, I got it, J-O-L-T-S, JOLTS, funny name. Uh, you will see that, right? They will call out uh, specific metros which have attracted the most construction workers and which have attracted the least. And you will see the list, right? I mean, Texas will be on one spectrum and then New York is on the exact opposite spectrum. Yeah. Tells the story very clearly. Yeah, it does. And and so you know, along those lines, where are are there? I, I, we know what has happened. Yeah. What's projected? What are some of the things that are projected for for population growth and for job growth yeah. nationally? Yeah, definitely. So uh, again, you know, I think the, the South Belt is definitely going to uh, continue as strong points, but then there are you know, certain pockets um, where you have seen people take a strong interest. I'll give you an example, Billings, Montana, okay? We saw it as a spot to have lunch on our way from Seattle to Yellowstone. We were driving a couple of years yeah. ago. Okay, Billings, Montana, seems like a nice place. Then guess what? Two years ago, it became one of the most favorite places for people to move to. Hey, what, how, why? So, you know, this is just an example of how demographic shifts have really impacted and influenced where activity is going to take place. So in addition to these common, most you know, usual suspects like you know, the state of Texas, you will see some parts of the country like that where you do have kind of renewed interest in people moving out of the big cities and they are going to attract. So Asheville, North Carolina, another example. 
So in general, you know, that's that's what you are looking at in terms of, you know, population uh, movement, so to speak. California is not going to get back the people they have lost. I mean, this morning I saw the news about another atmospheric river there, right? So it's one after the other. People are just not getting a break. So it just creates even more um, pressure uh, for folks to, to leave the state, right? Um, one of the things, if I can quickly mention here, very, very interesting statistics that just came out. So the Congressional Budget Office or CBO, I have, you know, their whatever um, subscription or something. So they, you know, sends me, uh, they send me these, um, these projections and a big part of that is around labor. So recently they looked at or re-looked at their 10 year projections. So they're projecting out to 2033 at this point in terms of labor, population, whatnot. Very interesting uh, fact they highlighted is that right now, when they looked at 2022 and 2023, there was a big surge, an unexpected surge in immigration that ultimately is giving them room for almost 5.2 million extra folks, working age folks that we can add to our population base going from now until 2033. That is an amazing development. As you know, especially within the construction sector, we are always talking about labor. It's all about the people, right? So when you think about that we just got, you know, five plus million working age people to work with us, that is definitely a good news. Now, obviously that's gonna be you know, scattered across the various industries and whatnot, but in general, I think that was a big boost and that translates into, you know, more than a percent of your GDP growth. So there's a lot of good that come with it. But I also know, I mean, when you talk about labor, you talk about immigration, it's very sensitive. There are lots of other <laughs> considerations. I'm sure you have some follow-ups there, but I'll, I'll pause there. I think that gives you a little bit of, you know, color uh, on the on the whole population slash labor issue. Well, I, I my first question is um, whether you know if that 5.2 million is legal immigration or if that is total number of people that are estimated to be here now that weren't here? I think it's, they're looking at the working force. So if I have to say that, are they all 100% legal? I don't think I would know, first of all. And okay. if I guess, I would say it should be a bit of a mix. Yeah, I've, I've, I would say a mix. Yeah, here's here's my, and, and I, don't, I really don't want to take this down that road, but I will say briefly sure. that it's, it, it, there's no, question we need people to join the workforce and that uh, gaining population is overall not a, a bad thing given that we need people to join the workforce but uh, if there if these are people who aren't here legally it becomes extremely difficult to um, to do any of that the right way you know, it, it's in, in other words, you know, these are people who what's their likelihood of being W2 versus 1099? What's their likelihood if they are 1099 of paying their taxes if they're undocumented? What's their right? Like, you know, th those types of things. So you get this, you know, huge um, potential vacuum of uh, of of, you know, unrealized tax dollars that we yeah. really, really need if these people are going to join the workforce, but neither here nor there. I have another question for you. I have sure. another question for you. I want to steer away from uh, I, another topic, another day. We, I, I want to have like seven, sure. I, I want to do a series on immigration. I really do. Yeah. Um, but um, 
what is you get to see from your seat a lot of contractors and you know and basically they come over to you and they're pieces of paper right you know and and their stories coming from the from the awesome agents like the people you know who you know at, at MMA who may be saying you know hey here's my guy you're going to want to underwrite this guy trust me he's great <laughs> you know that kind of thing um uh what is the overall financial stability of the contracting community today compared to just a year ago yeah. uh, and maybe compared to normal? Because that's the other piece, right? So how have we done over the past year in the contracting community in terms of contractor stability? And then how does this stack up in, in terms of your years of, of experience? Yeah. Yeah, I'll answer that. If I can add one quick nugget that is kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, in the surety world, we, uh, we use a terminology called the three C's. So character, capacity, and capital. When we look at uh, a prospect, we are not just looking at you know the financial piece. So it, it's really cool to keep that in mind. And yes, of course, we'll always get those things like, hey, you know, I've known this guy for 10, 20 years. Just trust me. So uh, we, we take that with a grain of salt, a big grain of salt, if I may. So sure, yeah. <laughs> put in the put in the hopper to make sure that we make the right decision. It's not just for us, it's for everyone involved, right? I said, our bonds guarantee that a public investment is going to be protected. So we have to be really, really thoughtful, methodical about it. So with that background, um, where are we seeing the financial stability of the contractor population? So I can give you sort of that aggregate view by looking at, you know, 3,000 plus contractors we have on our own book. Uh, it's a pretty decent representation of the uh, overall industry, you know, we are the number one surety, so we know that we have number one, number two, depending on the year we go hand in hand with travelers there. But the point is, our book will give you a fair representation of the market. So when we look at those financials, what we are seeing a couple of trends, right? So at a very high level, aggregate portfolio level, we have different ways of measuring the stress uh, levels of our accounts. What we see is that there is a, you know, what I like to call a journey to normal. And this is reflective of the overall economy too. If you look at construction starts, if you look at spending activity, you know, there is a, a bit of you know up and down in the post-pandemic period for different reasons. And I'll highlight that for you too. So we are seeing that um, also within the financial statements that we are seeing. Um, a couple of things happen there. You know, overall backlogs, if you think about that, uh, we are looking at historically high backlogs. Uh, right. And this is not just our book. When I look at the uh, um, ABC, Associated Builders and Contractors, yeah. they published their construction backlog indicator that I closely follow. Uh, you will see that you know, we went all the way up to nine plus months of backlog. This is overall average. Um, and in the last few months, it has come down to about eight and a half, eight point four. 8.4. So we're seeing that, you know, yes, they are still very high, but just slightly, you know, getting, making their way back to kind of like that pre-pandemic levels. So that's the kind of backlog story. Now with the backlog, we have to understand how the balance sheets are growing, right? So on that, we are seeing a couple of different, you know, nuances, so to speak. So yes, it's kind of a journey back to normal, but not equally, you know, if you look at different parts of the, the balance sheet and income statement. So one thing that we are seeing obviously is around, um, around profitability. So when you take up that backlog, right? You have historically high backlog, you don't have enough labor. Nobody does, uh, you know, nobody has anything extra. Everybody is kind of stretched thin in that respect. So it is going to take a little bit of a toll on profitability, but also you have the impact of government stimulus. So remember the triple P money, payment protection program? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
employee retention credits. So all these things kind of like fluffed up their net profits in the last couple of years, uh, and that is gone. So when you look at financials from the year 2022, which we have started seeing a little bit, it'll take us a little bit of time to get the whole um, you know, pool of statements, but we are definitely you know, keeping a very close eye on it. We know that when you strip out the effect of these additional stimulus, the profitability is definitely um, going to look a little bit different. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing again, right? Uh, we are seeing overall stress levels go up a little bit too. But again, we compare it not just to 2022, we compare it to 2019, because remember, if you go back right. a couple, 2019 was a very strong year for construction. We just beat the shit out of it. I mean, 2019 was really good, and then we became better. So that cannot continue forever. So when we are looking at the trending, we want to make sure that we are keeping that time frame in mind, right? 2018, yeah. 19, leading up to that point. So essentially, you know, all in all, overall, it is fine. There are, um, you know, there are certain parts that definitely, you know, give us some cause for concern. Uh, you know, our contractors stretching a little too much because I just said, right, backlogs are at historically high levels. And, you know, with all the federal funding money that you are seeing, even with some stress on the developer side, you have a lot of boost on the government funding side, right? Through IIJ and IRA and CHIPS Act, you name it. It is going to be um, very important for the contractors to make sure that they are coming out you know green at the end of the day so one trend that we are starting to see is contracts are able to actually factor in a lot more contingencies so in other words they have become better at accounting for the unexpected so to speak right you have materials prices go up crazy you have labor uncertainty so they are putting that in so the profit in backlog that's the metric we track so the job that i am taking in right it's my pipeline we are seeing even though gross profit may be somewhat lower, the profit in backlog is healthy, which is really good for us. So we know that the pipeline that you know our contract is going to work on is going to be pretty strong and solid. So these are some of the trends that we are seeing. So again, you know, if I can sum it up, overall it's kind of like a journey back to normal, you know, somewhat pre-pandemic levels with a few nuances here and there that we keep uh, a very close eye on. Awesome. I love it. That's uh, that's a good rundown, and I, I I agree. You know, with the uh, with your overall assessment, I think that's hard. It's hard to argue that logic. I also find that backlog is interesting right now on the ground level. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing the contractors that I know. Um, and I tell we, I mean, I, I, I work really hard to, our team works really hard to stay in touch with all of our content, just kind of always have our finger on the pulse, uh, and, and at a, you know, mini macro level, right. Between the, you know, hundred or so relationships that we might have, uh, that we're talking to at any time, um, have a, have a clear enough picture to, to offer advice to, to our clients. And it's not so much that they don't have backlog. You're right. They do. They have backlog and it's a lot of backlog. When does that backlog hit? That has been a very strange experience in, in recent because jobs have been pushing. Job mm -hmm. starts have been drifting. And because those starts have been drifting, that backlog isn't showing up when we need it. And so we could be, you know, you could be dead slow right now for four months and have the biggest backlog you've ever had. 
And that if you're if you're a self-performed contractor is really, really scary. That's brutal, right? Because you know you're going to need these people and yet you're carrying them today. And, and it's scary to lay these people off because you, you, you how are you going to get them later? So these are companies that even though they might have on their own in their own business, historically high backlog, they also may have um, historically low billings month over month right now because they've been carrying such high backlog and they're afraid to sell work. And uh, it's a really, really weird uh, situation. Yes. Are you seeing any of that? Yes. And Chad, one thing I can add on to that is, you know, when you look at the cash position, right, liquidity for our contractors, again, cash is king. That's another saying we have in charity. We don't want to, you know, ever undermine that. Uh, what we are seeing, and again, it's kind of at the tail end of the book. So yes, you're self-forming subs, the smaller uh, end of the spectrum, so to speak. Um, cash position has also been somewhat, um, you know, weaker than before. And the reason there, again, goes back to that there is no more government stimulus and uh, people are not borrowing as much. So that's another yeah. trend you want to keep in mind. So interest bearing debt has been low. Uh, and it's not, again, not a bad thing, right? Because what we found is that contractors learned their lessons from the last you know, global financial crisis. And they have been very careful this time around that we are not going to you know, over leverage ourselves. But that does have an impact, right? Because you are not having enough cash flow. And so when the subcontractors, um, you know, have that level of a bind, like if they are indeed in a, in a bit of a gap, so to speak, then it does become different, uh, difficult for them to um, to carry on, you know, just to kind of uh, what we say, like maintain payroll, right? So yes, we definitely are seeing a little bit of pressure uh, that way too. Our hope is that they will be able to manage through it. And that's what is yeah. one of the that we talk to our contractors about that you know things change timings change you need to be able to flex yourself to adjust i know it's easier said than done but that is the kind of advice that we try you're, to work yeah it's that. it's you're right and uh it's just a muscle that that some contractors aren't used to having to flex that's and so you know, what do we do to pick up short-term work that starts now and that runs for the next quarter is something that, you know, if you're a, a you know, concrete contractor that's used to a, an average $15 million job size is like, where do those exist? <laughs> you know, how do we, how do we pivot to that? That's a, it's not something that they're, that they're used to. So uh, I want to pause for a moment and, and uh, throw some love to our, uh, to our sponsors, awesome people who helped to make uh, our message possible. So uh, I've talked about them several times today because it's been relevant, but I'll start with Marsh McLennan agency. Uh, every insurance need you could possibly have, including bonding, deep specialization with contractors. If you are a contractor and you're not, uh, communicating with, let alone working with Marsh McLennan, you should reach out. Uh, number two is Sandy Spring Bank. Awesome uh, mid-sized uh, bank, regional bank that focuses on small to mid-sized companies. Uh, and uh, they have a great contractor book of business. They really know what they're doing when it comes to supporting and partnering with contractors to create successful outcomes. Lawrence Law, who understands everything from your day-to-day -day legal needs to your you know significant litigation requirements uh if you are a contractor in that small to mid-sized range in the uh in this region in the mid-atlantic uh and and you have a need uh lawrence law and kate and her team are awesome people 
and then lastly, uh, Katz Abosh, which is a um, an accounting firm that is um, also a mid-sized group that is very well known in our region for offering uh, top-notch uh, assistance, not obviously not just with tax and, and audit uh, and standard accounting practices, but really also as uh, a business partner and uh, uh, an advisor from an accounting standpoint. So thank you so much to our four sponsors, uh, four professional services firms that really help to make uh, our contracting community thrive in our region. So, uh, so, uh, Stacy, what kind of questions do you have? You've been dutifully listening and taking notes on, on, on all this <laughs> stuff. What's on your mind? Lots of good stuff. Um, when is the federal infrastructure money going to be hitting and will it hit evenly geographically? Great question, uh, Stacey. So, um, Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act, right? IIJA, it's a historically high level of federal investment in our infrastructure that we have ever seen in our recent memory. Uh, $1.2 trillion in the overall tag, uh, $550 billion or so in new money. Um, so it was passed in you know, November 2021. So when we looked at it first, right, I mean, we were, of course, extremely interested in knowing what's the time horizon. So generally, it's between you know five and seven years, roughly, give or take. And the distribution looks kind of like a bell curve. So you have the first couple of years that's, you know, kind of light in the uptake. And then you have the middle couple of years, two to three years. That's where bulk of the money is spent. And then it kind of tapers off. So if, you know, I take you back, uh, what we see now, we already know, uh, 2022, we got about 10% of it spent out. When I looked at November 23rd, um, November 22nd of last year, 2023, uh, we had about 361 billion that has been announced. We call it the announced funding from the government. So that will take you about, you know, 30% of that overall $1.2 trillion bill. So in the first two years, we have gone through 30%. But guess what? You have 70% of that left. That is amazing. And what I feel, you know, again, thinking back, the, the pace at which we all expected the IJ money to hit the ground, it has been slower than that. So yeah. that essentially means your spending window is probably going to be stretched. So initially, you know, back in early uh, 2022, and, you know, we did some in-house estimates, we were thinking about ending by 2026. I think it is going to go further, right? That 70% is not going to be spent, you know, this year and, and, and the next year for the most part. I think it, it will give us a little bit more time. So is it a bad thing necessarily? Probably not, because it does give you a reliability in terms of how long this investment is going to stay with us. But the counter argument to that is, OK, yes, but you have election coming up. You may have some changes in DC. Will that cause an impact? Because we are, you know, hanging on to this for too long. Uh, can there be a disruption? So those are kind of open questions. But generally, that's where we are uh, with the bill. So second part of your question is about geographic spread. So you know, most of the IIJA money is going to be sent through formula grants. So every state is is going to have it. Is not like pick and choose. There is definitely going to be a little bit of that competitive grant piece. I think it's about thirty percent where um, any agency would have to actually compete for it. But majority of the money is going to be spent through formula grants. It's you know, congressionally uh, established um, based on population and how you might travel, stuff like that. So uh, they have definitely tried to um, ensure that fairness through that mechanism. Yeah, this is this is uh, I'm, I'm like you're catching me mid note because I'm having an idea as you're talking. But, uh, but you know, this is something that uh, nothing against them. But don't let all of this money 
please, please, everyone, don't let all of this money flow through the five largest contractors in the country. There is so much business out there that needs to be performed and middle market uh, contractors absolutely should consider getting involved in what it takes to perform this work. When you hear infrastructure, you're thinking roads and bridges and, and, and rails and things like that. And while that's true, that's not the only thing that's happening in this bill. Take a deeper look, figure out what opportunities might exist for you, figure out what your company can actually perform and, um, and throw your hat in the ring. Get, get involved. There's a lot happening. Otherwise it's all going to go to five companies. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, uh, there's a big opportunity here. So, and I, we just had somebody on who was talking about Eric Coffey, who, who mm-hmm. joined us, who was talking about the, the dearth of, um, you know, mid-sized contractors to, to get involved with the federal government. Right. Um, it, one, one quick question, you, if you don't know offhand, that's okay. But just, do you, do you have a sense for how much of this money is being funneled into other agencies or is it let me see if i'm saying this right how much of this money is is going to be just you got to go do business with the federal government versus the federal government giving money to other entities and those entities managing the money do you have a sense of that yeah yeah so i'll I'll answer it in kind of two ways so if you look at construction spending in general in general look at last 10 15 20 years um the amount of spending that comes with the feds is really small so we have an ability to look at the distribution. You know, if the Bureau of Census gives us that data, so you can see, okay, public spending versus private spending. That's the first category, and then within public, you have federal and local. Mm-hmm. The local percentage has been growing ever since. You know, during the Eisenhower era, it was exactly the opposite. Ninety percent came from the feds, and then just a little bit came from the states. It has completely flipped. Now, eighty to ninety percent is actually spent by the state authorities, right? State or local authorities, I would say. So. That is exactly what's happening here too. So IIJ, you do not have to work with the federal government. In fact, all the you know formula grants that I just mentioned, all that money is being given to these different authorities. So yes, of course, you'll have the federal highway authorities, for example, FSWA, and then they will engage different agencies to get things done. So no, it is not about you know necessarily mandatorily working with the federal government right. is going to be a mix of that. And a lot of it would be done and undertaken by states or local agencies. Got it. Thank you. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I, I think that makes it more approachable for a yes. lot of people who, who might feel more comfortable, you know, working with their uh, county or state or city. But at the same time, uh, I will echo Eric Coffey's remarks, which is that, you know, don't be afraid to do business direct with the federal government either. That's okay. Absolutely. Um, they're, they're a great customer. Um, all right, cool. Naladri, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you uh, joining us. I, I, I have uh, about 700 other questions, but we don't have time. So uh, thank you for being here. I hope that you'll join us again. Maybe we'll do a 25 market outlook. Uh, you know, sometime uh, at the beginning of next year and we'll, and I'll play back this episode and we'll, and we'll fact check and we'll, we'll, we'll check to see just how accurate we were. Does that sound? Yeah. So by the way, I got that from the book on how to guarantee guests don't come back. Um, yeah, no, thank you so much for being with us. And anything you want to say in parting? Sounds good. No, I was really, um, happy to be here. I like the, uh, you know, 
the way you run this. Um, I think the contracting community and all the stakeholders in the community will benefit from it. So, uh, you know, the more we talk, the more we share our thoughts and ideas, the better we can be and the stronger we can be um, as a community of, of builders and folks who really like to see our country develop, you know, more and more and, and become that uh, the great infrastructure that we can uh, provide for our people. So uh, thank you both um, for setting this up and, and continuing on with the momentum. That's why we do thank it, you. man. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> thank you. All right. See ya. Have a good one. Stacy, let's talk about next week. What What's happening next yes. week? What are we doing? We're talking about safety next week. We have Chuck from Henley Construction. He's an OSHA outreach instructor. Oh, cool. Um, yes. Yeah, so he's going to talk about probably trends and safety, um, share some stories with us. He has some great, well, I don't, some stories. <laughs> and um <laughs> I don't want to say that they're great, but they're learning lessons for well, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're useful. Yes. Right? Um, and he has some pretty strong views on, you know, how safety training is kind of going virtual in some cases and what that kind of looks like, too. Cool. So Look forward excited. to that. If, if, if you're, uh, you know... Uh, a safety person that's a no-brainer show for you and if you're not a safety person you, you need to be right like that's that's a part of the it's a part of the game in this industry you've got to be focused on safety yeah so all right well good thank you so much uh stacy oh yeah and you know guys just make sure that you're visiting us at uh, the morning huddle construction show.com if you're catching this for the first time uh and you're thinking that didn't suck Please go to the morning, uh, uh, the morning huddle construction show.com and, uh, and make sure that you subscribe on podcasts and make sure that you, if you'd like to join the discussion with us live, we do this every Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. with uh, some exceptions, but most of the time, 9 a.m. Eastern. So, uh, Stacy, anything else that I'm missing? And if you want a recap of today's episode, you can just subscribe. Um, you can email me at Stacy S T A C E Y H at steeltoe.com and we'll get you. We send out a recap email every week. <clears throat> awesome. Yep. Right. Don't miss it. Get on the newsletter. Thank you. Yeah. All right. See you guys. Have a, Have a great one. See ya. Bye. -bye.